Hello, I'm Dominic Green. I'm the editor of the Spectator's World Edition, and welcome to today's episode of The District from Washington, D.C. My guests today are Adam Credo, senior writer covering foreign policy and national security at the Washington Free Beacon, and Jake Wallace-Simons, who's a deputy editor of the Jewish Chronicle of London. And today we're talking about Iran. American negotiators are back in Vienna for a seventh round of negotiations. It's not going well, and the Middle East is on the brink. Uh, Jake, you broke a story uh, a couple of days ago, which you can read, of course, on the Spectator World site, um, about what the Israelis have been doing to counter Iran's nuclear program. So let's start with that. That's right. I mean, there are two two parts to this, really. The, the first is that uh, Naftali Bennett made a speech last week in which he rather cryptically suggested that uh, from now on, Israel would um, pivot to a policy where they would retaliate for uh, aggression from Iran's proxy militia, i.e. Hezbollah or other groups in um, in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, uh, Yemen, uh, retaliate directly at, uh, on Iran, Iranian soil, rather than against the militia themselves. So one source described it as attacking the head of the octopus rather than the tentacles. From from the pieces you've been reporting, uh, um, the Israelis are already doing this. There is, is kind of James Bond type operations have been carried out over the last year or so on Iranian soil. Yeah, I mean, when I first heard this uh, speech, I thought that he might mean that Israel is going to start launching missile attacks and, and you know, those sorts of overt attacks on, it, on, on Iranian soil. But it turned out when I looked into it with my sources that actually he was referring to covert uh, Mossad operations with deniability. So it, it's an extension of what's been going on with uh, increasing tempo over the past few years against Iran's nuclear program. So, you know, in February, I, I broke the story about the assassination of uh, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, the uh, nuclear scientist who was killed using an automatic remote controlled weapon, which had been smuggled into the country by the Mossad over a period of some months. Um, and so this week uh, in your pages, uh, Dominic, I uh, broke the inside story of three other operations which took place over the last 18 months on Iran's nuclear facilities. Um, and they were, in short, the, f- the, first, the first one was on Natanz, uh, in 2020, and it involved Mossad uh, smuggling uh, explosives into building materials and then selling it to the Iranians, who then built it into their nuclear centrifuge halls. And then later on, they pressed a button, of course, and it, it blew up. The second operation was uh, recruiting 10 scientists to go into the top secret A1000 basement, full of many, many centrifuges and plant explosives there, which were blown up. And the third was a quadcopter attack on um, on a factory uh, in Karaj, just outside Tehran. So it's just sort of get, lifting the curtain a bit to expose some of Mossad's techniques, which they've been using, which show the extent of the infiltration into Iran. These are amazing stories. And I look forward, if anything uh, goes like it did with your last round of stories, I look forward to the New York Times breaking them all over <laughs> again in a few weeks' time. Um, turning to you, Adam, you've been following the Biden administration closely over the last year. You have my deepest sympathy, of course, but, you know, it's a job. What do they want from these negotiations? What is the outcome that they are seeking and why? Yeah, that really is the question, and it's completely unclear. And I'll answer that fully, but I did want to say to Jake what the New York Times did with your story was shameful. And they, they've done this in the past to other people, including me. And um, it just that that really torqued me up. I, I remember the Fuhrer on Twitter. So uh, your reporting is appreciated from me. Of course, man, it's great. It's it's absolutely great. So look, th- this is the problem with the Biden administration. Um, 
Uh, I was saying to you, Dominic, before we came on the air that for all the criticism the Obama administration took for trying to enter negotiations and finally in 2015 ink this nuclear accord with Iran, uh, despite the criticisms, they had a plan. They knew what they wanted. They didn't get all of it. Things like ballistic missiles. This stuff was never factored into the nuclear deal. Uh, but there were restrictions and different parameters that did end up being written into uh the accord. The Biden administration, on the other hand, uh, doesn't seem to actually know what it wants. It knows that Trump walked away from the deal, and that's bad. And they have hubris towards the Trump administration, as evidenced by a lot of things the State Department has done, uh, even unrelated to the uh, Iran nuclear portfolio. But this is the fundamental problem, and the Iranians see it. This is why this has dragged on for so long. Uh, the Iranians want all of these sanctions removed. Rob Malley, the new uh, U.S.-Iran envoy, has said to me, uh, the State Department, and uh, also in various background briefings and on-the-record briefings, that they are prepared, this is their language, we are prepared to remove all sanctions imposed by the former Trump administration. Uh, I've reported that, they, they admit it. And that's an interesting negotiating position, because where do you go from there? You've given Iran everything at once, and Iran has not agreed to a single concession yet. So this is why I don't think you're actually going to see Iran agree to concessions. Look, they're at 20% enriched uranium. It's a stone's throw away from highly enriched, around 99%, to fuel an atomic weapon. That's really just nuclear know-how that they have. That's not really something they need to achieve, right? That's flipping a switch. And they can do that. Uh, so it's not, to look at it from their frame, it's not really in their interest to offer concessions when they're already getting what they want. Right. So the next question I have to ask is, uh, what does the Biden administration think then when the Israelis whack an Iranian scientist or conduct all these high-tech operations and blow up a facility? I mean, under the Trump administration, there seemed to be very close coordination between uh, Trump, Netanyahu, over how to deal with Iran. But there obviously isn't that now. Are they are they displeased by these kind of actions? I'm not sure I'm willing to say they're displeased, or at least they've given no sign that they are. But look, this is a relationship that is not nearly as close as it was under the Trump administration, uh, in the same way that it wasn't close under the Obama administration, who had a policy, if you'll remember, of daylight. Remember that? Uh, they admitted our policy is to be allies with Israel, but have daylight between uh, the things that we do. And the nuclear deal was one of the reasons for that daylight. And I think that's what you're seeing again. Um, I was surprised to see Bennett actually just publicly really come out and say that we don't trust what this administration is doing. Remember, as talks resumed last Monday, um, Bennett said, do not give in to Iran's nuclear extortion. I think you can read a lot more into that statement, which is the Israelis saying what they always have. And as Jake has uh, greatly reported that they're going to do what they need to to ensure that Iran does not get a nuclear weapon. Uh, and again, this is not just a matter of Iran getting a nuclear weapon. This is what they'll do with it. It's a theocratic regime of mullahs that want to kill Jews wherever they live, and they will use a nuclear weapon to achieve that purpose. So, I mean, I should then ask both of you, do you think that Israel really will go it alone or that they're talking this way in order to kind of stiffen the spine of the American negotiators? Because there's also uh, talk you hear that the Israeli security establishment might also prefer a kind of small deal or a bad deal to no deal. In other words, to have some kind of framework with which uh, Iran would be restrained by a, by a third party like the United States or the European powers. 
Yeah, I mean, I can tell you from the State Department's view, I think there continues to be coordination on that. The Israelis aren't hiding what they do from this administration by any means. I, I think that coordination still remains. And maybe in some fashion they do want to see a deal, but I don't think that they have any expectation, given what we saw in 2015, that this deal is actually going to stop Iran from building a nuclear weapon if it wants to. Jake, what do you think of this? What are, what are you hearing? Well, I, I'm not sure that I'm hearing quite the same uh, with respect to the Israeli coordination with the Americans, if I understood you correctly, on, on intelligence operations. The, the, the three which I uh, revealed recently were termed by my sources blue and white operations, which is um, sort of how they refer to pure Israeli operations rather than blue, white and red, which is with the US. And even the, um, the assassination of Fakhri Zadeh in February uh, was done with, with the merest of sort of hints to the Americans, but not it wasn't authorized by the Americans or planned in conjunction with the Americans. So they, they were carried out independently. And look, you know, from my side of the pond, it's it's a fascinating moment because we're finally in a position which I never imagined we'd get to, which is that Britain is defending Israel more than America is uh, in, <laughs> in, in, the, um, in the Iranian negotiations. You know, the Americans, there's a perception that by and large, I mean, there are different, as you know, as you said, there's a, there are different uh, figures in the American uh, American negotiating team. Some are more hardline than others, but basically, the you know the the direction of travel was set by President Biden before he was even elected. He was telling the world with a, with an article on CNN, I believe, that he basically intended to re, to redo the deal, whatever happened. Um, and the the, um, the the British people who I've been speaking to recently, members of the negotiating team, um, are much harder line than than the Americans. And you know, the, the past couple of months have seen three or four high-level um, meetings between uh, Israeli figures, including Naftali Bennett um, and Isaac Herzog, the president, and Lapid, who's going to be president soon, and British officials in Britain. Warm meetings with Boris Johnson. Uh, Britain has um, taken the step to prescribe Hamas in its entirety. So relations are very, very solid between Britain and the United States. And look, you know, Britain and Israel, sorry. Yeah, it's very interesting because, I mean, as recently as um, I think October 2020, uh, Britain, France and Germany didn't support the Trump administration at the UN when it sought to re renew sanctions against Iran. So what explains this change of heart in Britain? And we have to ask also, are France and Germany on board with that as well? Or are they still, you know, quietly trying to work towards advantageous trade deals, basically? I think I'm not sure that France and Britain are are as uh, are on the pro-Israel side of the fence in the same way as sorry France and Germany I beg your pardon uh, are on are on the same side as Britain in this regard, or certainly not to the same extent. Um, I think really what's changed is 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 Johnson really. I mean that you know Boris Johnson is very pro-Israel. Uh, he he feels it. He he knows it. He he's um, old friends with Lapid, for example, who we saw last week. And I think he has um, influenced. Um, the direction that the government is taking. I mean, I spoke to a, a British negotiator just a couple of days ago um, who had just returned from Iran. Yeah, there are these two negotiations going on, some in Vienna on, on the nuclear uh, program, but then parallel ones in Tehran on things like prisoners, Radcliffe, uh, you know, bills for undelivered tanks in the time of the Shah and those sorts of peripheral issues. So there's, there's a lot of activity going on. And um, basically the, the word from the British camp is that they think that the talks are going to collapse. They think that the, Ameri that, that the Americans are going to hold out a deal in the, in the next week or two, going to be rejected, and it's going to fall apart. Um, Adam, I wanted to ask you, I was uh, reading James Baker, who is obviously an experienced diplomat, 
um, once used the phrase dead cat diplomacy to describe uh, what people do when they know the the uh, negotiations are failing and they lay the dead cat on the other side's doorstep before the same can be done to them. Um, this was how someone was characterizing as we this ongoing round of negotiations, the seventh you know stage, um, and that Iran has effectively tried to reset the terms right back uh, to where they started. Um, do you see that this is taking place? Do you see the U.S. is basically heading uh, sort of over a cliff in a way with this? So they're going to make a proposal, which is which the Iranians are already setting themselves up for refusing. Yeah, look, I mean, that, that does seem to be the case. And I think it's interesting, Jake, um, from your reporting that those operations were not nearly as uh, telegraphed as uh, we might have thought, uh, especially because the, the State Department's refrain is always how close they're coordinating with their Israeli partners. Um, but look, I... Uh, one thing happened that's very critical, first of all. The Biden administration wanted this deal before the last elections in Iran. They thought that they could negotiate much better with Rouhani, this perceived moderate, although I think it's fair to quibble with how moderate uh, anyone in that regime actually is. But uh, th there was no doubt from my end and from uh, the various briefings that the State Department held that they were trying to get this done quick. That was the key. And when the Iranians had their election and walked away, you're absolutely right. There was a reset. And the only thing that changed is they became even more hardline. Uh, the Iranians do not want any constrictions on the nuclear program. They want it legitimized in many ways. And they don't want to talk about things like, again, in 2015, ballistic missiles. None of this will be covered by a deal. And the Biden administration will essentially give out their proposal. They have one. Um, they've been talking about it. And I think after after the first round, I'm going to say on Friday of last week, the State Department briefed uh, just on background, but you can assume who participated in those briefings and um, really did not even account for what the E3 said was Iran's unserious negotiating position. They said, look, we're, we continue to be committed to this. We will unwind sanctions and we're going to offer proposal. And we'll see where it goes. I don't think that they want to admit that they're not going to arrive at any sort of deal that's really acceptable um, to the Europeans and certainly to any hawks in Congress here. Well, that's another question, of course, as well. It'll be very unlikely to get through the Congress. Um, I wanted to ask, um, since the negotiations began, I think the governments have changed in, in Washington, Tehran, Jerusalem, and, and for that matter, as Jay was saying, in London as well. Um, was there a point, do you think, at which something could have been achieved to uh, put a limit on Iran's nuclear program? Or do you think that the deal itself, the framework that they were trying to revive, is, is fundamentally flawed? And, and as you know, Henry Kissinger said, actually puts Iran on the glide path to a nuclear weapon. Uh, and that having done that, its purpose from the Iranian point of view has already been served. They've, they've been on that glide path. Why would they go back to it? So do you think that there was possible at some point to have, to have made this deal that would have had a huge regional uh, transformative effect on the Middle East and, and beyond? Or was it actually a deep, deep misreading from the off of, of the nature of the people that they were dealing with? Well, I mean, I, I feel that there's been nothing but bad options from the beginning of this, really. I mean, you know, Trump pulling out of the JCPOA was a, was a bad option. Maximum pressure was a, was a bad option. Um, I think that trying to reheat the deal was a worse option than the bad option. Because let's face it, the problem is that Iran has already pivoted to China and to Russia and to the UAE. I mean, they're selling 
you know, billions of, or millions and millions of barrels of oil to China and to the UAE, which is allegedly an ally of Israel now that's still buying Iranian oil. And to India as well, which is mm-hmm. an ally of, of, of exactly. you know, Britain, Israel, America, everybody. Um, yeah. And Syria. And mind you, uh, this administration has posited waiving certain sanctions on Syria so that energy deals involving the Iranians can be facilitated. That's right. I mean, you know, that's not to say that Western sanctions don't matter. They do matter. But just I, I, I suggest perhaps not quite enough, really, to to make the Iranians really take notice, given that the Iranian regime doesn't actually care about its population very much and the sort of standard living that, that they that they have. But I think that the really worrying thing, and this is, was coming out through speaking to negotiators over the past few days, is that there is some level of doubt as to whether the Iranian nuclear program could be destroyed with bunker busters. Um, or whether it's too too deeply buried for an air assault. The, certainly the British side feels that way, and they feel that if that's the case, the only way in which it could be destroyed, if it were, if we were to have to go to that, to those limits, to that, to that plan B, as it were, would be with a ground invasion. Now, there's only one country in the world that, that's got the capacity to carry out that ground invasion, and as we all know, that country ain't going to do it. No, absolutely. We have, I was going to ask both of you this, really, and this is perhaps the last question that, for both of you, is we appear to be... Uh, ending the period of jaw-jaw, does that mean that we are now into war-war? And for who? Well, I mean, you know, like I was, like I was saying, I mean, I, you know, Biden isn't going to do it. And, and frankly, the American public isn't going to like it, whoever's trying to lead them into a war like that. And, you know, and without the Americans doing it, you know, the Israelis can't, can't do a grand invasion of, of Iran, and nor can any other country, really, apart from a massive international coalition, which isn't going to happen either. So I really do feel that we are hedged in by bad options with the spectre of the worst option coming closer and closer. Uh, and it's difficult to know what the way out is. So do you see uh, in the medium term then a um, sort of nuclear standoff between Iran and Israel in the Middle East and the further nuclearization of the Sunni Arab Paris? Well, I mean, I think that there's, there are two things which in the, in the sort of short to medium term could help. Uh, one is the continuation of, of Mossad operations, which may delay the nuclear program a little, you know, stall it, basically. They can't destroy it, but they can stall it, you know, for nine months, for three months, for a year, for 18 months. Um, and the other thing is that the policy being pushed by the British at the moment is a is basically of a freeze. So the Iranians would agree to a proper freeze um, and, the, you know, there would be some limited sanctions relief to reward that. And then that buys a bit of medium-term time while everybody can think through exactly what happens next. That could, I mean, that I think that's basically the best we can hope for at the moment. Adam, what kind of effect do you think that would have on perceptions of the United States more broadly in the world, in the way these things interlock with other issues? Because Iran, after all, is a crucial Central Asian and Middle Eastern power in the middle of the map. Well, look, practically, I, I think that these things are true. Even before the original negotiations, there are questions whether the bunker busters could actually destroy Iran's nuclear program. And and now I think it's, it's even less of an option, uh, given what they've done at their various sites. So, so that tends to be true. However, the, there there are a few things that that I think about from the frame of the U.S. diplomacy. Uh, the, the Biden administration has waived sanctions; will continue to waive sanctions, and people criticize this so-called maximum pressure. But uh, when we look at Iran's cash reserves, they were brought down to about four billion in January, the beginning of this year, um, from about thirty to forty billion before uh, they've through oil sales to China, Syria, other nations, Iran has really rebuilt these cash reserves. Um, the Biden administration has effectively turned a blind eye to sanctions enforcement. These sanctions still exist. They're not being enforced, though. 
Um, and I, I think the the real X factor here that people don't speak about enough is the dissident community. The Iranian people do not like their government. Protests have get, gripped the country multiple times, not just in the past months, but the past years. We have water shortages now that are riling the people up. And with sanctions, a regime with no money and a people rebelling against it, you could actually have the perfect storm for the regime to collapse. That might be your best option. And fostering that from the U.S.'s view might be the best option. However, I don't see the Biden administration doing that. All the uh, overtures they make actually embolden the regime. But uh, we, we shouldn't forget about just how unstable the country is and the regime itself. Well, as the song used to say, there are bad times just around the corner. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. But um, Adam Credo, Jake Wallace-Sams, thank you so much. It's been informative. It's been deeply depressing, but it's been <laughs> profoundly uh, informative. So thank you. Pleasure. And you've been listening to me, Dominic Green, casting the pod with them, Adam Credo and Jake Wallace-Simons on The District. Find us at www.spectatorworld.com or on iTunes and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thank you.